Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Today we'll be talking to Rachel Craftsell, Associate Dean and Professor of History at Xavier University, about her new book, How to Be Childless, A History and Philosophy of Life Without Children, out this year from Oxford University Press. Welcome. Thank you, Yana. Glad to be here. This is it's great to talk to you. This is a fantastic and I <laughs> I really enjoyed oh kind of the personal, I felt that it was like this very personal, very a uh, comfortable book. I, it was really enjoyable. So can you tell me, um, let's start and see, like, tell me a bit about you. Sure. Um, so I, as you said, I'm a professor of history at Xavier University, where I'm also an administrator. So I'm also an associate dean um, in the College of Arts and Sciences. And I've, uh, I came to Xavier in 2005, after having completed my uh, PhD at Yale, and before then studied at Indiana University in uh in the in Indiana, and then um, I've been at Xavier now for 15 years. I've my my first two books were on Franco-Prussian War of 1870 and its consequences for people in France. So I decided for this next project that I wanted to do something very different, um, and I wanted to do something that was more personally meaningful. Uh, to me and to other people that I encountered. And so um, I kind of had a moment where I said, yes, I am going to do the book about the history of childlessness. And that's been a really exciting project ever since. I can see how this, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a definitely kind of a, a change, right? From being an, a proper historian dealing with the long dead or idea, you know, big ideas in the past to dealing with this very current um, and, and kind of very personal issue, Right. It was very different. It's been different in all kinds of dimensions because for one thing, um, in the book, I I look at not only a much broader period of time, so going from the 1500s all the way up to the present day, I also look at a much broader geographic span. So I'm looking across Western Europe and into the United States and Canada a little bit. And um, so that's a change. I I then had a, a lot of different kinds of sources I was looking at. So I'm I'm looking at literatures not only out of history, but also historical demography and some philosophy and some psychology. Um, and that's been really it was just a, a lot of fun to do because I got to think very holistically and and in some ways more realistically about how I think about issues because I'm drawing on so many different things. Yeah, that makes perfect sense actually. Yeah, would you uh Tell me about yourself. Sure. Um, so, so um, I came at this project uh, after having worked on uh, French history and on the Franco-Prussian War for my previous work, and I decided to go in a very different direction for this project. Um, I think one that ended up being more personally um, meaningful as well. So, um, I myself decided to be childless when I was in my twenties, and it was to me, a very just personal decision and not one that I had historically contextualized at all. I had assumed, in fact, that being childless was something that was unusual and maybe had only started to happen in like the 1970s. And I thought that even as I myself became childless, I thought it was something sort of deviant and different. But as we are 
you know, as any historian starts to discover, as they look back in time, they realize that certain ideas that we think of as as contemporary, like disruptive technology or like globalization, we find out, of course, that these have long histories. And I wondered whether childlessness was the same. And it turns out it is. And it's not just that there are uh, religious people who choose uh, to be childless. And it's not just the few individuals we might think of, such as Queen Elizabeth I, uh, who chose to be, you know, to, to end up not being married and not having children. Um, as it turns out, due to major demographic shifts, childlessness was actually quite common um, in certain areas in Western Europe, and particularly in urban areas, going all the way back into the 1500s. That's amazing. You know, I, my, my work, um, my, my book is on informal marriage, and uh, I've done the same for something very similar about um, I decided not to marry and I looked and I felt like, you know, this was this brand new thing since the seventies. But of course, no people, loads of women have lived their entire lives without being married in, uh, in this, in a perfectly normal, you know, this was a normative process. Yeah. 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 That's totally fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, But it is true. We tend to think of everything, you know, our, our scope, even as historians, we tend to think of everything that is brand new. We've just invented it. Yeah. So, no, it's just that it, it, as it turns out, like the time period that sort of looms largest in my head, you know, as I sort of make my way through the world as a non, you know, in my non-historical lens, I assume that everything that happened during the baby boom is the way that it always was, right? So everyone got married and they had kids and they had children very young and then, you know, and maybe they had, you know, three children or whatever. And as it turns out, um, that was the anomalous period. So if we look back into the 1500s and the 1600s, we start to see people deciding, um, well, basically, the, the decision point is that instead of getting married as soon as they possibly can do it, instead, they decide to get married when they have the ability to set up their own independent household. And so once you do that, they then have to spend time being apprentices uh, or you know going out and working, earning money, saving money. And once that happens, like the likelihood of them ending up being married goes down. It may be that still 80% of people are getting married, 85%, but some people are just never getting married at all. And you know, it, when we can also match that with documentation showing that people were, um, that there was not as much, uh, not very much illegitimacy, then we can make the case that actually there are a lot of people who are childless. And purposely so, you know, for any number of reasons, which you lay out really well. Um so did this project, I mean, is this, was this just a personal choice or have you run across this before? Was there a particular conversation? Like what got you to write this book? Um, I don't think there was a particular conversation so much as a realization that, um, you know, I like, w- when else am I going to write this book? I was in my late thirties at the time when I decided to pursue the project and, I had tenure and I was like, I'm ready for something different. And I, you know, as first I was exploring different issues, different, you know, I was kind of casting about for different projects. And I realized that doing a project on childlessness would be one that would speak to a lot of people. And then, you know, as I started to kind of float this out to um, my my friends and colleagues in in history, they were so much, they were so fascinated by this in a way that I didn't ordinarily get when I was talking about, say, French civil society. Um, you know, so, so people are like, no, this is a project that you have to pursue. And I said, okay, I got to do this. So how did you start research on this project? Um, it was... It was hard to locate individuals who were childless and to confirm that they were childless and then to also find their voices and particularly to have their voices discussing 
pieces that were relevant to being childless. But so when I found people, when I found Beatrice Webb, for instance, who left this, you know, massive diary, or when I found Suzanne Volcan, who is this French feminist, the first editor of a, of a, of a woman-led newspaper, um, and she had memoirs, then I, I really pursued those and, and looked for their, their, their words. At the same time, I was doing a lot of secondary literature uh, work, so piecing together the different Different arguments that historical demographers have made, um, arguments that um, that historians have made about single women living in the in the early modern period. Um, those were really really important sources. And then trying to ask questions about what it meant to be childless and to see that as a distinct history, something separate from being single but related, um, particularly in that early modern period. And so then and then um, as I try to craft the entire book. Um, I felt like there were at least a million different ways that it could be structured. And I think I tried about 990,000 of them because, um, because there are, you know, you could tell the story chronologically, you could tell the story thematically. And what I ended up doing was telling the story in two parts. The first part is the history of childlessness. In other words, what are the different pathways that people have taken to be, to ending up childless? Um, of course, everyone's born childless. Um, but nobody, uh, not not everyone, like you know, ends up uh, changing that status. You know, some people stay that way, and so so the different pathways that people take there. First in the early modern period, then a, a change in the 19th century, and then changes again in the 20th century, which we can go into it in more detail. And then in the second half of the book, um, I explore how to be childless. What are some of the major questions that people ask about childless people and how they thrive? What does it mean to be a thriving human person? And how can childless lies illuminate those questions? So questions like, will I regret not having children? Um, What is my household like? Can I make a better world by not having children? And what is my legacy? What is my old age like? Um, will, Will I die old and alone? Um, those questions that, again, that childless people get asked, um, but actually, as it turns out, are important to all of us. Yeah, I hear that. So aren't you worried that you're not, you're going to die alone? Mm-hmm. Well, of course I am. Aren't you? <laughs> like, come on. Right? So is my mother. Like, <laughs> having a child doesn't indicate that you're going to die surrounded by loved ones. But no, no. Sometimes. That's not the thing you ask a, a person with five kids at a cocktail party. Well, they're not at cocktail party. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Um, so why don't you tell me a bit more about uh, the first part, the historical part of this? Sure. In the first part, I, I, I look at a couple of different moments when when the history of childlessness seems to shift. That is to say, the pathways that people take toward childlessness te- seems to shift. Now, of course, um, human beings have been childless ever since the dawn of sexual reproduction. That's that's how evolution works, right? Some people are some some people don't have children. But um, what I noticed is that in the early modern period in in Western Europe, particularly Northwestern Europe, and more so in urban areas, we see that people were changing their modes of marriage. So they're getting married, not when they're capable physically of reproduction and joining then their in-laws household, as would have been the case in an early marriage society, but rather they're getting married more like in their mid to late 20s. And so many of them, because they have postponed childlessness, and I use that term postponement really particularly, they they have postponed having children, excuse me, because they postponed having children, some of them just don't end up getting married at all. Now, we don't have a lot of evidence about 
why they didn't get married. It could be that they very much wanted to get married, but never got the money to do so. But we have some, you know, like some signals, right, that there's poets who are talking about the burdens of marriage, the burdens of bearing children. Um, we, 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 you know, and we just know that human, you know, humans were, humans are always seeking um, different ways to imagine uh, their lives. And, and so to me, um, I, I don't, try to speculate what percentage of people were choosing to be childless or choosing not to marry. But I suggest that there there probably were some people who were perfectly happy remaining single um, so long as they were able to support themselves. And when you put this together with, with um, research into women's economic activity that reveals that women were able to uh, have professions make a living, often not officially, right, often on the black market, um, but doing so consistently and frequently and with great success, um, then we can start to say that um, perhaps the path just straight toward marriage was not the only path that people were seeking. But yeah, the idea that um, that there were, there's this variety of lived experience in the past is another thing I think that you know, modern people tend to forget, right, the past. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then when I, the, the second major turning point is in the, like the last third of the 19th century, where historical demographers have noticed that childlessness within marriage starts to increase and to be higher than rates of natural infertility would suggest. And they notice those changes happening in areas where we also see decreases in the overall fertility. So as we're going from families of eight or nine children down first to families of like four or five, and then eventually down to families of one or two children, at the same time, we also see rates of childlessness going up. Um, So what they'll look at is um, when are women, at what age are women being married? And then what is the rate of fertility for those women? And we'll see that that goes up and up. Um, and higher than we would expect if they were just following natural, like age-related infertility. And um, again, we don't have a lot of people talking about this. We don't have a lot of like voices of women saying, "Hey, I'm, you know what? We're married and we're not going to have kids." Um, but we know that it's happening. We know that we can see, you know, you can see the data that that it is happening. And and I think what's what's sort of important to realize is that. As you know, we're, we're we're all very familiar that fertility is declining during this period, but what we might forget is that that means that 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 there are also some very very small families of one children and even zero children as part of it. And the fact that that overall fertility in Britain, say, might be four or five children in the late 19th century, might mask our realization that there were also a, an awful lot of childless couples um, who were there. And this is on top of the continuing trend of some people never ending up getting married at all. So that so between the two, we have even higher rates of childlessness. In fact, the highest rates for childlessness on record are for women who were born around the year 1900. And that's true for Britain, for for France, for for Germany, for the United States. Oh, I mean, I just kind of thinking it through. It makes sense in Europe why people wouldn't be reproducing in the twenties and thirties. Sure, and and I think that's also um, a common explanation for childlessness is that it's related to war and depression. Um, I think that's actually a um, 
a uh, an incomplete picture. Um, because so, for instance, like after World War One, like in France, the rates of marriage and, and like number of children, of course, dips severely in the teens, but then it pops back up. And so it, and it, and it like continues to follow the same trend lines that had existed before the war. And, I, and the same is true in other areas. So so I think the the overall rates you know, not that not you know specific years. Yes, of course, uh, war and depression change this to change fertility rates. But the overall trend is actually more um, long lasting and deeper. It goes back to the 1860s and 70s. And, and so, so in, in opposition to kind of the picture that I think is very common, like what. Yeah. And, and I mean, the thing is like, so we, we, we sort of feel like, oh, well, of course, after World War One, you know, people didn't have kids. But then, of course, after World War Two, we had the baby boom and people had kids. So like that, the war explanation cannot be like, that's too simple of an explanation. Yeah. Okay, great. And so I mean, much more about like, economics, and, uh, you know, I'll, uh, okay. Let me go back here. You see a lot more kind of economic, personal, um, emotional factors. How do you find those? Is that, is that? it's it, you know it's it's very hard because I I also want to resist becoming an economic determinist, right? And just saying it's only because opportunity costs. And then if you could like come up with the perfect formula for opportunity costs, you would know exactly what the rate of childlessness would be, um, or that you could influence childlessness that way. Um, I do think that there's something to be said for it because areas where the state provides childcare tend to um, have. Uh, higher rates. Um, the interesting thing, like France, for instance, has lower rates of childlessness. And one explanation for this that I find uh, pretty convincing is that France has multiple uh, ways to support women who have children, whether they decide to stay home or decide um, to go back to work. Whereas in other countries, there might be only one way to support childcare or no state supported childcare as in the United States. Um, and that, and that there might be higher childlessness in those areas in part for those economic reasons. So, um, I'm really reluctant to say that there's one cause. I think it's, it's incredibly complicated. And, um, I, I hope that other historians will decide to pursue, um, some of those, some of those questions for, for more specific times and places, uh, in more detail to help us better understand the phenomenon. Yeah. I mean, in some ways though, it's just kind of, there's just, there are things that, these are things that women don't talk about, uh, particularly if you're thinking about, you know, the early modern period when so many people's voices are not recorded at all. Um, certainly nobody's asking a a garment worker, like why she doesn't want to have children or if she wants to have children, but can't. Right. Right. And that's so frustrating. I I mean, uh, like 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 all of us, we you know we, we wish that we had their voices, um, and can can kind of you know try to get at them the best that we can. And I think that's what really changes in the 1970s uh, when childlessness comes back. So 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 after you know so I, I mentioned the the highest rates of childlessness are in the 1900s. The lowest rates are for women who are born in the mid 1930s. In other words, the women who are who give birth to the baby boom, right? Um, but that's short lived. That's just you know fifteen or twenty years, and then by the late sixties and, and into the nineteen seventies, you see childlessness coming back, and it's coming back for ex- the exact same reasons that it had existed in the late nineteenth century, right? Combination of people being uh, you know never married and never having children, and people within marriage deciding that they're not going to to have children. But the difference is now they're willing to talk about it. 
And they're much more able to actually control this choice because we have medical uh, contraception. So I think uh, that's that an uh, excellent discussion of like, the first, the historic, the history part of this book. And so then you turn uh, to uh, it becomes a how-to manual. A little bit, yeah. Um, the the second half is structured around questions that childless people often get asked, or assumptions that are often made about childless people. So um, that you'll regret not having children, um, that you will grow old and die alone, um, that you might not have any kind of a legacy or might be cut off from like the the future of humanity. And so I I decided to address that by examining both contemporary literatures such as um, psychological literature on regret and to incorporate the voices of childless women to the best of my ability um, so that we, I could see how they thought about it um, and, and, you know, give, give some, some resonance to, to those things as they unfolded at different times and places. Um, so tell me about some of, um, tell me about regret, for instance. Sure. Um, you know, regret is, is both a, an emotion, it has an emotional component and a cognitive component and it's very socially driven. Um, so there are rules sort of feeling rules, right. About, um, how you're supposed to feel and, and when you might, you, you're supposed to feel regret because we, we often in, in contemporary, um, Western society are told, well, you should live your life without regrets, but there are certain moments in which you are supposed to have regrets. Um, for instance, if you've committed some kind of a, a crime or, or social sin. Um, and second is if you're childless, you're supposed to go through a period where you really, really regret feeling uh, the fact that you didn't have children. Um, and so I try to make the argument that, that this is, this is a feeling rule. Um, this is a, this is a culturally constructed um, and different women at different times have gra- grappled and coped um, with this, this, idea uh, over time. And also to suggest, you know, other ways that we can think about um, regret. And, you know, if we are people of ambition, uh, people with ideas in the world, uh, we will accumulate regrets as life goes by. Um, But it turns out if we ask older women um, about their regrets in life, childless women do not have any more regrets than women who have children. It's only when you specifically ask them, do you regret not having children, that you start to see um, people mentioning the fact that they didn't have children. And another piece that I think is really important thinking about regret is the distinction between women who self-define themselves as voluntarily childless versus women who self-define as involuntarily childless. Um, Those who define themselves as involuntarily childless tend to have more regret um, than those who define themselves as voluntarily. And I, to go even deeper into the weeds a little bit here, there are studies that show that women's self-definition of whether they chose to have children or chose not to be to have children or not are different from the external definitions that people might place upon them. Um, in other words, there are women who one might from the outside say, oh, this person definitely wished that she had children. Um, she, she tried to have children for a long time. She reports that. Um, so clearly she um, did not choose to be childless. But the woman herself will say, no, no, I'm, I'm voluntarily childless. There was a moment where I, I switched and I decided I am not, I'm, I'm choosing not to have children. And that makes a world of difference in terms of their ability to cope with the, the social pressures around childlessness. 
children. Yeah, I I think there's such an important cultural script to do you regret not having children? Yeah. Right. Like that's a very useful thing to say if you have a vision of what women are meant to be doing. That's right. And I think that a lot of the questions that come up with with um, childless women are are questions that are um, that we can think of as, as very sort of existential questions, you know, like, because, um, if you're, if you're saying, you know, why are, are, are you happy not having children or do you regret not having children? Um, it's, it's really sort of asking, are you happy with what you have done with your time, with your body, you know, with your, with your, with your ideas, um, and, and really putting it on a, on a, really elevating those existential questions um, in ways that are kind of stunning um, given that these are sort of questions that come up in, in sort of like passing conversation with people you've just met. Um, I, and I, I wanted to raise awareness that, that those questions really are, um, are important to people's self-perceptions. It definitely demonstrates the idea that childlessness is somehow um, abnormal, like an aberrant behavior, like which you, which must be regretful. It had to be a mistake. They couldn't possibly have just chosen this. Right. Right. And, and, you know, and many, many people have chosen it and other people have, have, um, I think, I think one of the, one of the overarching arguments really comes out in this section on regret is that because the pathways to childlessness are so many and so complex that, um, Sometimes it's not very helpful to think about whether it was a choice or whether it was uh, a constraint, um, because right maybe maybe you didn't prioritize marrying some guy that you didn't really like, you know, but you could have married him if your number one priority was to get married and have kids, right? Um, so so is that a choice or is that a constraint, right? Um, right. So so I think because it's so complicated and it's not like a one time decision either. Um, it is a, it is a series of decisions and pathways that unfold over the course of decades, actually. And so, and, and so to say, well, do I regret not having children as though it's like, it was like a one moment kind of a thing. Um, I think that really oversimplifies the situation. It's one of the questions just that I, I also have no, I do not have children. And it's one of the questions I find, um, sometimes my, like my students ask me even, are you, you know, did, did you, when did you know you didn't want to have children, you know, or like, are you sorry you didn't have children? And I'd say, well, I never actually didn't chose not to have children. I just never chose to, right? It was never, I was never of great interest to me. And, you know, and then all of a sudden I'm like, well, I'm 50, I guess I'm probably not going to do that now. And, and my regrets on that are zero, but I also don't think that there was, there was no, I mean, there, there were times where I said, no, I'm not having a child with you. Right. But there was no point in my personal history where I was like, I will not have a child. And I don't think that's all that rare. I think it's much, I think it's much more common to me. Like I'm going to have a baby. I'm doing that now. Like making that choice seems so pointed. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think the pathways are like, that's, I, and that's why, you know, I resist trying to put some kind of numbers or percentages, because I just think um, even when we have the chance to actually talk to people about their lives, like as you just in your brief biography just now related, it's incredibly complicated. And like to say, you know, to sort of check one box or the other is, is I think misleading. Well, and it also, it really simplifies the the process, you know, I mean, I think um, how one goes about doing a doing a life is so complex and often out of your control. Mm-hmm. But yeah. just maybe having a child though, that that's a, 
or not is an ethical choice. Um, I think one of the other things that I found very interesting here um, was just from the beginning, as you're trying to talk about what childless, like how you define childlessness and what word to use for that. Um, and then the, the discussion of all of the different paths to childness, childlessness or having children. Um, I think it becomes really clear that like, uh, you know, uh, that the, the family structure is just really complex, right? Some women have children of their own, but they care for children of previous wives or fictive kin, special aunts or what have you. And I think you a really nice job of uh, just demonstrating that none of these definitions are neat. Absolutely. I, I struggled for a long time to, to think about even the phrase that I use um, to describe the the people in this project, um, a lot of people like the word child free and have even said, no, no, you, you chose the wrong world word. It should be child free. Um, but I, because of all the reasons that we've discussed, I think that that is, um, that's a certain brand of being childless, but it's not the only way to be childless. And when it came down to it, I, I was, you know, I was worried that saying childless would sound like I, I was describing something that was lacking. Um, but, but, that is the, the condition of not having children is the very condition that I'm trying to do, describe. And so just like being having a like a wireless internet service is not like it's a lack that it doesn't have a wire, right? It's just saying this happens to be a service that doesn't have a wire. Um, so that's that's the spirit in which I chose to use the word childless. And I think it's I mean, it, I think it's as, it's a, certainly as close to perfect as you're going to get. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, makes it feel like a little bit of a manifesto you know um the one other portion of the kind of the of the manual here the how-to um is the chapter old and alone and i would wondered if you have a comment on what you found there um i mean that was one chapter where i felt like particularly brought home the fact that the the questions that are often posed to childless people are universal questions. Um, we all grow old. We all um, we all have to think about our social networks as we grow older. Um, we all think about our health. We all think about our financial stability. Who will take care of us? Um, and I don't end that chapter by saying, "Well, it's all okay for everyone," right? I mean, that's it. These are these are real and serious questions that everyone faces, and and my point here is to say that you know people with children also face them, and and we can look back in time. There was not a golden age, you know, several hundred years ago when um, children were taking care of their parents. We see instead that there were documents, legal documents, that stated that the children will take care of their parents, and they had to make them legal, of course, because it was not. I guarantee otherwise. Um, yeah, and another suggestion too that often who you end up spending your golden years with are, is not the people you are biologically related to as well. People in their communities. Um, Absolutely. And you can think about it. You can plan for it, right? You can figure out how you're going to make commitments to each other if you wish um, to, to, that, to take care of we're each in this other. Period right now, we're like, what that looks like is changing. Um, but you know, fictive kin is, we have a term for that for a reason, right? Um, yeah, all right. So this was, a, it seems like quite a uh, turning point for you in your work, or just a, a new and, and very brave project, you know, um, after doing some pretty traditional historical, like this is what an historian does, and you decided to do that. 
So what's next? What are you going to do after this? I don't know yet. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about that. I um, I do have a project that returns me to the Franco-Prussian War, um, and I'm I'm you know work, working on on doing a like a general history of that. Um, but uh, but at the same time, I I really loved working on this project. I loved the questions I was able to ask, and I want to continue asking those kinds of questions and to 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 explore things in a more holistic way as much as I can. Um, so to be continued. All right. Uh, great answer. How fun. Um, how fun. And all of this while doing uh, being a dean as well. <laughs> I'm very, very lucky that uh, the dean I report to has been incredibly supportive of this work and, and knows that if I couldn't do this, um, this project, I wouldn't be able to do the administrative work that we care about. Right on. Excellent. All right. Is there anything else I absolutely have to know about this? I just, you know, the, the the person I most love in this in this entire book is named Suzanne Volcan, I, who I mentioned is the feminist um, from the born circa 1800. And the image that I love the most about her, um, she traveled all over the world. She traveled to Russia, to the United States, and she traveled to Egypt. She was a San Simonian and 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 followed them over to Egypt uh, back in the 18 um, 1830s. And the image I love of her is she's standing in front of the pyramids at Giza, and she is saying, uh, "Just imagine all the history that has passed in the time since these pyramids have stood, and what will happen in the future in the time until that they until they fall." She 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 wished so much that people for for women to have more freedom and for women to be able to to speak openly about their lives and 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 she. You know, she she strove for that, but she could not even imagine the lives that we live today. And I just find that the image of her in, in Egypt to be the most powerful story. That's a great story. She was fascinating. I was happy to meet her through this book. Great work. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, and, uh, and I wish you good luck in this next pursuit. I'm looking forward to your next book. Thank you, Yana. My pleasure.